welcome to View from the Pool. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by two individuals from the Southern Hemisphere. The first one you may have heard before is an old friend and colleague, Gary Johnson, who is, of course, an Australian lifeguarding expert. Well, that's what we call him anyway. And I'm also joined on this occasion by Tracy Pukutapu, and it should be Tracy Prince Pukutapu, having gotten recently married, and she's the Aquatic Programme Manager for Ota Aroa. How close was that, Tracy? It's pretty close. You're not doing too badly, actually. <laughs> I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. So you've probably to- heard by the accent already that Tracy is based in New Zealand, and I'm not too sure just at the moment if you're North Island or South Island. Um, wh- which is it? Uh, North Island, at the bottom of the North Island in Wellington. Wellington, there we go, bottom of the North Island. So we've got Tracy in Wellington, in the bottom of the North Island. We have Gary, who lives just a stone's throw from Sydney, seven and a half hour drive up the road, <laughs> I believe. I know, everything's a long way, everything's a long way for you, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, uh, anything over 50 miles is a day out. That's right, I know. <laughs> it's uh, good good to see. So, yeah, we've got a fairly interesting um, triangle here with the uh, Southern Hemisphere, uh, two sites, and obviously myself in, in Ireland. Great that we could get together um, and have a chat about a few things. And as usual, we probably don't know where we're going and don't know where we end up, but that, that's the fun of this, and this is the joy of, of, of hands across the ocean. Um, it's morning time for you, evening time for me. We've had 30 hours of rain so far oh. in the last 30 hours. I, I, I'm sure you must awful conditions down below. Mm. Maybe you don't want to know what it's like in Wellington. We've had, uh, we've had amazing weather because um, for those of you that don't know Wellington, we're called Windy Wellington, uh, so lots of wind, but we've actually had no wind for the last week and been sitting at about 23 to 25 degrees. Mm, so nice and beautiful. warm. Well, we've, in, in Australia, we've had a really, um, and we're hearing about bushfires again in Western Australia, mm. but on the East Coast, we've had a really cool summer. So um, really nice, not, not 40 degrees, yeah, like um, nice barely hitting 30. So it's just been nice. It's like summer's on holidays. Oh, um, well, so one thing so- I should point out, Tracy, is that well, Wellington is the capital of um, New Zealand, so Tracy's situated in the capital. It's not as large a city as Auckland, but um, I think it's nicer. It's mm. for a capital city. It's it's fairly quaint. It's nice to walk mm. around and stuff like that. Great places to go, and yeah. So I suppose we should um, talk about Tracy, where New Zealand is, for those who don't know. <laughs> <laughs> How do you say where New Zealand is? We're uh, probably at, at the bottom, <laughs> right at the bottom, um, off to like, off, uh, off the right hand side of Australia. Off that the long, right hand that side, long skinny bit. Yeah, the yeah. long kind of skinny. We're yep. three islands as well. So um, Stewart Island, right at the bottom, South Island, and then um, the North Island. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I think, oh, I'm not sure, but I think our population's about four and a half million. We've got yeah. more sheep than people anyway. The, the population of Ireland is only six and a half million, six and a half, seven million in total, um, compared to England, 55, right. 60 million. Um, so we've got that little island mentality, mm. which okay. is why New Zealand yeah. has been quoted so much in the Northern Hemisphere about 
how you dealt with COVID. Yeah. Um, you know, and, yeah. and everybody in Ireland says, well, why did we not do that? We're all very clever after the fact, <laughs> but hey-ho, we are where we are. Well, I mean, look at Australia. We were, as soon as New Zealand went into heavy lockdown, we had our, our Prime Minister saying, oh, you know, they're over the top. It's a bit of panicking. And, and we saw media just last week saying that New Zealand are top country in the world for how they responded to the outbreak. Yeah. Um, you know, mm. it's quite remarkable what New Zealand's done. And well-deserved. Yeah. And so was that, that, that first couple of weeks tough, Tracy? Um, yeah, I guess it was a shock um, because most people have never had to deal with a pandemic in New Zealand. I guess we're, we're lucky in our isolation that we probably get sheltered a bit from any type of pandemic. So to be able to... Um, you know, to be thrown into this kind of we're dealing with a pandemic and now we're going to lock the country down um, yeah, was probably a bit of a shock for people. Um, although for some people, um, they really enjoyed it. Um, our family actually just carried on. <laughs> you know, we just we just yeah. carried on and, and did what we did Um and I mean, I worked right through, so um, that was a bit different in our house. Um, we had a couple of us working in the rest, not in school shut for a while, so school holidays got moved forward. Um, I, I think probably the hardest thing was people um, queuing up to go to the supermarket, you know, like we never do that yeah, in, yeah. in New Zealand. The supermarket's never yeah. that busy. Maybe Christmas when everybody decides to mm. go and How'd you go for toilet paper? Oh, we were fine. <laughs> I can't believe how many people stocked up on like loads and loads of toilet paper. Um, the funniest thing, uh, one yeah. of my neighbours, um, I saw their garage open the other day and they have got <laughs> – Stockpiles, and I'm talking about <laughs> probably a year's worth of toilet paper in their garage. It's crazy. <laughs> I remember going to our shopping centre and all the flour had sold out, yeah. and I'm saying to my guys at work, that's old people. I'm going to blame old people because I wouldn't know what to do with flour. Who's buying flour? <laughs> I want to talk about the, the culture uh, in New Zealand, Tracy, because from – my aspect, I, I always describe New Zealand as saying, if an Australian goes to the US, you'll feel like Australians are laid back. But if you want to go to New Zealand, that's laid back. Yeah. Um, but when I talk to New Zealanders, they say, oh, you've got to go to Tonga. Yeah. <laughs> Tonga. <laughs> um, um, yeah. So you, you have a much more laid back culture, don't you? Even even in, amongst the executives. Mm. Um, yeah. So it's very much, a, um, we kind of say, is it, oh, she'll be right you know, or it'll be okay. Um, yeah, and nothing's as much of a problem. I guess I noticed that in the UK as well um, when I lived there that things were seemed a lot more stressful maybe. But here it's just like, oh, it'll be all right. We'll figure it out, um, yeah, somehow. And I guess because we have that DIY mentality or – uh, for those that yep. don't know what yep. I mean, the do it yourself. So something happens and, oh, it's okay, we'll fix it, you know, we'll figure it out, somebody yep. will fix it. Um, yeah, it's definitely a lot more um, laid back. I guess there's parts of New Zealand where it's probably not so much, but 
Look, I think a good example is I was um, I, I was working in New Zealand. I had to change towns, and I was um, I'd read in the email from the accommodation I'd booked that if I was going to arrive after eight pm, I had to call them. So I I, I realised it's going to be late. So I called them and said, "Look, I, I'm just letting you know I'm going to be late. What what happens?" And he, and, and he said, "Oh, it's okay, bro. What we'll do is uh." <laughs> He, he said, we'll, we'll get the key and we'll put it in an envelope and we'll stick it on the front door of the office. So I'm thinking, great. <laughs> I rocked up. Was, you think, where's security gone? Now you rock up, there's an envelope on the door that says, Mr. Johnson, you just take it off the door and up to your room you go. So that was, that was all we had to do. <laughs> yeah, I must jump in here because I think the Irish are very like the New Zealand folk as well. I mean, our, our, we have a, a yeah. saying here, you know, we'll, we'll take a chance. It'll be grand. <laughs> It'll right. be grand. And, yeah. and I certainly noticed a big difference when I go across into England or Scotland or Wales that, you know, the health and safety overload nearly has, has you know, it's gone that way where in, in the Irish are much more laid back. And I do remember having to adjust to that. But the other thing I do... I found interesting recently was when I was talking to, we were lined up to do some work in the Christchurch uh, rebuild following the earthquake in the pool. And and Gary's familiar with this as well, but, but the difference in trying to deal with, if we were building this pool in England, this is how we'd put it together compared to if this this is New Zealand and this is how we do it. And the classic is the bomb. Is it the bomb pit? Is that what you call it? The the bomb yeah, pool? Bomb where pool. there was a there was a the bombing pool. Yeah, the kids were encouraged to go down a zip wire and drop into the bomb pool. Which is exactly what every child wants to do. Now that just wouldn't happen in the UK. That would just be Claim City. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I, I identify quite a lot with um the New Zealand mindset, and I think it's just a small island mindset as well. You know, with the rest of the world hasn't actually come in and and taken over and pushed all their beliefs, and and this is how we have to do it. There it still is a difference in culture that the Irish would be seen as, you know, the laid back, happy go lucky, take a chance, you know, at rugby, at drinking, at anything, <laughs> and I think that's probably why we get on so well with. New Zealand and Australia for that matter because there's that laid back attitude as well. Yeah. 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 One of the things I noticed about aquatic centres in New Zealand is the amount of fun stuff they have like you're describing, Mm. Robin. Um, I remember going to a pool just uh, east of Rotorua and they had a Tarzan swing. So there was Mm. a – in the the concourse, the pool Mm. was a a pole concreted in out over the pool and then a rope and – I was sending tweets back to Australia going, do we have a single Tarzan swing in Australia kids can use? I'd never seen one in a pool and here's one. And they've got like a mattress sort of duct taped to the side of the pool and this is your sight induction. Here, kid, here's the rope. When you get out there, let go. If you don't, you come back and you hit that. <laughs> <laughs> got it? Good. And that's and, and all kids are having fun because they're learning great stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. What other stuff do you have, Tracy, in pools? Like you have the, the lazy rivers. Lazy rivers, um, this, you know, standard hydro slides. But then we have um, like the rock walls. So I don't know if you have them anywhere else where they're kind of attached to the side of the pool and they can climb up um, 
on on the rock walls um, and it's beside okay. the pool. Uh, some of the pools have those or they have yep. um, yeah, like zip lines over the pool that will go from the top diving board down um, and some of them have like a like a cargo rope climbing kind of thing that I can't explain it, like a cargo net that's kind of hung above the pool and they can climb climb over there and things. (laughs) Yeah, things like that. I guess what we think is probably normal, uh, (laughs) normal here, but um, yeah, still. So a number of wave pools, Mm. indoor wave pools, have a number of indoor wave pools. Yeah. Um, You just don't get many of those in Australia. Yeah, yeah. And then, you want to try lifeguarding into a wave pool, Robin? We've got quite a few in the UK. In fact, we just right. I've just been asked to price one up today. Believe it or not, um, so there, there there are quite a few of them in the eighties. In particular, they went through this phase of building these indoor right. lagoons um, because obviously, I mean, it doesn't rain as much in England as it does in Ireland, but it still rains a lot, and and it wouldn't be known for good hot sunny weather. So a lot of these indoor lagoon beach area type pools were built with wave chambers and wave pools. So there's quite a lot in the UK. And yes, they churn up the water and the water looks like shit and you can't see anything, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yep. you, yes, you would definitely find a lot more here than because people come to people come to swimming pools or a lot of swimming pools, certainly in the 80s to get out of the rain and to have a bit of fun indoors. And you can sit with your the baby in your knees in the shallow end as, as the little waves trickle in or as the teenagers, you can go out into the middle of the wave chamber and see what's going on and have a great, you know, great fun. It was kind of an indoor beach rather than, which is always in my head, the Australians just go into swimming pools to swim 150 lengths as fast as they can, win Olympic gold. <laughs> there is a bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I just find that the risk processes in um, New Zealand aquatic centres are a lot less onerous than in Australia, and to an outsider that can seem um, a bit a bit slack or a bit not as careful. But I just think in Australia, sometimes we get over careful, and so we start taking things away from people, uh, so they have less fun, but they also learn not to judge risk for themselves. Mm. So we have, um, yeah, the Tarzan swings are classic. If you don't learn to use a Tarzan swing, especially plenty of Australian rivers have a Tarzan swing. If you don't let go out there, you come back and you hit the tree and it hurts. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, all these, or, or diving. You know, we have, we've had so many pools over the years in Australia who have lost diving boards because yeah. they're just yeah, they're considered too oh, dangerous, too risky. That. It's just, yeah. oh, I, I hate it. Yeah. I hate well, can it. I ask a yeah. question then of you, of you Tracy? Um, in relation to whilst in the UK we've got the RLSS UK who would be the the major player in the marketplace in terms of lifeguard qualifications, etc. And the STA are involved as well. But the most most of the qualifications will be RLSS UK. They write and describe the agenda, etc. What way does it work with you guys? So I guess we're quite different. Um <laughs> which is probably not surprising, but um, (laughs) 
So the the organisation that I work for, Recreation Aotearoa, um, we're seen as the the voice for people that work in the recreation industry and aquatics sits in that space. Um, and so the industry here actually owns and um, and pulls together the qualification. So um, we facilitate that process. And then we have what's known as an industry training organisation here called Skills Active, and they manage um, the running of the qualification for us. And they make sure that the qualification meets the requirements to um, go on to New Zealand qualifications authorities' list of credited qualifications so probably a little bit different so every time we review our lifeguard qualification uh, we pull together an advisory group of who would be people who would be seen as leaders within the aquatics industry um, who have a lot of knowledge about lifeguarding um, probably been in the industry a long time like me um, and and then we get together and we look at the qualification uh, we would look at um, other qualifications as well like from probably we would look to Australia and have a look at what they've done with their lifeguard qualification um, sometimes we would use external people so um, in the last review that we did of um, our lifeguard qualification, we had a chat to Gary and um, used some of his information in our lifeguard manual as well and in the training that, that people do with their lifeguards. And then the training of lifeguards is done in facilities um, by staff and then we have registered assessors that assess the lifeguards um, once they've completed their training um, so that they gain their qualification. Okay, so... And, and Australia is a slight is is a slight change in that as well, Gary. Though, isn't it? Um, yeah. So a bit like you, RLS here manages the qualification, mm-hmm. and we have our own um, industry body that sort of handles everything else. In New Zealand, they do sort of one and the same. Which, if it wasn't for their honesty, could be be rife for um, all kinds of horrible stuff. But they pull it off so well. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a bit of an, a bit of a monopoly on this on the qualification, but um, I think Skills Active is the group yeah. that delivers it, and they are so professional and so thorough. It's just I, I always walk away going, "Wow, that works so well." Well, it's not the yeah. saying if it's if it's not broke, yeah. don't fix it. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, um, I want to touch on something that uh, Robin mentioned a minute ago, which was the bombing pool. Tracy, so it's, it's something we definitely don't see in Australia. And the first time I walked into um, a centre and saw a bombing pool, I just I couldn't believe it. What? What? So it was a uh, a circular pool with two sort of um, platforms either side, quite a deep pool. So do you want to explain to us uh, about this about this bit of your culture? Yeah. So and what a manu <laughs> might be. So. Um... Yeah, bombing's a big part of of um, the, the culture here, uh, especially teenagers. They love it. Um, and, um, yeah, we've had some facilities that have actually put in a specific pool for it. Um, and I guess it, it is a bit of that. We're still managing the risk. Um, 
and we've actually taken the risk away from that activity being done off a bridge over a river, um, off a wharf into uh, where you would normally see boats being launched and things like that. So where um, our teenagers have access to a bombing pool, they're less likely to go and do that activity in a place that is less controlled and less managed, I guess. So um, that's what we do. Um, and yeah, we've got some different names for um, bombing, but uh, Manu is, is one of them. Um, and, I, and I don't know if it's the same everywhere else, but there's the staple. So I can't kind of explain how your body position goes, but you kind of fold yourself in half. Well, obviously you can do one. <laughs> um, and, and go into the pool. Um, so, yeah, it is um, obviously it could go wrong, uh, even in a swimming pool, but at least it's a managed environment. There's lifeguards there. Um, you know, they make sure that they kind of teach the kids to do it in a way that they're not going to kind of come back and hit their head on the side of the pool. Um, but, yeah, they're really popular. And there's even competitions that they have here now um, where a pool will have their their dive diving board area closed off for a day and it'll be a bombing competition and right. there'll be prizes and everything. In the UK, there's a, a very famous saying that was probably designed in the 70s that that used to be in every single swimming pool. And it was 12, 12 cartoons, 12 captions of what you couldn't do in the swimming pool. So it had the obvious no running. The next one was no petting. In other words, no kissing in the pool. <laughs> and the third one was no bombing. You know, so it was a list of 12 no's. So it, there was never anything you could do. And I remember that as a child, you know, from the 70s. And you'd still see them kicking around places. So you, you weren't, you were, and of course, it was the best thing in the world if you could get a bomb in before the lifeguard <laughs> spotted you. But it's interesting. The other thing, just very, very quickly, one of the other things that happened in the UK in the summer quite a lot is uh, a craze or skill set, whatever you want to call it, called tombstoning. Have you ever come across that where it's open water and into the, into the sea and they jump off cliffs and all sorts of stuff and people get their legs broken and drown and everything? Tombstoning. Sounds good. A naughty thing to do. And, and again, in the UK, people go, oh, well, you know, it's only 60 feet drop. And then they jump in. The waves go away and there's nothing for them to jump into because the weight you know, is gone. Or they hit the water and didn't realize that it was only seven degrees. <laughs> and then get cold water shock and die. So, yeah. yeah, it's not a healthy, healthy thing. But there's been quite a few incidents about that. So maybe if we had a few bombing pools as well, that would be helpful. Yeah, but yeah, have a bit of fun. The thing about the bombing pool that I really liked was um, not only were we allowing kids to bomb, the very thing they wanted to do, so we were attracting them to the centre because all we usually do in Australia is put barriers between people coming in, what you can and can't do, what it's going to cost you. Here were kids bombing in a pool they were allowed to bomb in and um, it had taken all that bad behaviour away from all the other pools. So the lap swimmers, who Robin knows were swimming 100 laps as quick as they possibly could, weren't being annoyed by kids doing bombs. Um, it was just perfect. And, and this was, um, I, can't remember name, I can't remember the uh, name of the centre, but it was quite a high ceiling. And when I mean high, I would say six metre high ceiling above this pool. And the kids could wet the ceiling, no problems. Like that's how good they were. 
Um, and just talking to him about um, this, because we're in Australia, we call it bomb, but there's this word Manu being chucked around. So I was asking him, maybe I can have a go at a Manu being a smart ass. <laughs> and, um, and one of them said, Big Maori boy said, Why put this guy Manu? <laughs> so I always remember that white boy's got Manu. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to take this opportunity to talk about the um, the Maori people because uh, Maori culture is, is, you know, marinated through the whole New Zealand experience. Um, the, the welcome to country when you go to it to a, a conference. Um, I can remember the first time I heard it, I was in a conference in Sydney and it was Tracy's boss who was um, who was opening this opening the, the conference and he, he did a uh, welcome to country in, in Maori and uh, I was had my head down on my phone rudely, but the the way they speak and the presence and the it's almost an aggression, but it's so earthy and strong. I, I couldn't help but look up and go, "Who is this? And what is he saying?" It's so powerful. Where mm-hmm. you know the Australian Indigenous languages are quite quietly spoken, and they look down a lot. And um, where the Maori is very in your face. It, you know, if you look at uh, at Captain Cook's um, first journals, they're quite an aggressive race at the time. Um, but when you go there now, nothing bit further from the truth. I often find myself at uh, the New Zealand conference, and I remember one guy in particular. I remember him, Tracy. His name's Tom, a really tall Maori man. He's he's younger than me, very tall, really broad, and he would he he would tower over me and talk very quietly. He would not look me in the eye. He'd look down, and go, "Hi, here you going, Gary?" Just thought I'd, I'd come over and say good day, bro, and uh, yeah, like thanks for your training. And uh, they're so humble and friendly, and I just go. God, he's a big yeah. man. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, I have to just tell you this quickly. The, the my friend who came over uh, is a guy called Paul Tamati, and uh, Paul would have been. He's not a six foot plus Maori. Um, he was but uh, a compact man, and I remember him. He was asked to go out to one of the primary schools when he worked for me to to show the kids and try and teach them the haka. It was during, I think it was one of the, the, the one of the World Cups. Mm. And my kids were at this school and they've known Paul for for years. You know, in fact, they were born when he arrived sort of thing. And he gave them a rugby ball each for when they were born, you know, <laughs> surprise, surprise. But I remember the day that he went out to the school <laughs> to do the haka and the boys came home. And they just said they've never seen anything like it in their lives. He absolutely scared the shit out of all the kids. <laughs> One man on his own. Because they were used to Paul being such yeah. a, a quiet, you know, well-spoken individual and very um, a humble guy and listened and spoke and all the rest of it whenever he was spoken to to this animal <laughs> you know, <laughs> in the middle of the assembly hall floor at the kids just on his own so i can absolutely identify with what you're saying there gary but the, the language tracy the, tracy you speak it you speak the native tongue um no but we um as an organization um we have been doing some lessons um and we try to uh practice some of it so um when when we come into the office in the morning, um, more often than not, uh, the greeting to each other will be in Māori. So kia ora is hello. Um, or morena is um, 
like good morning, like how you would say good morning to people. And then we may say something to each other like um, kete which is um, how are you? And then we will respond in, in Māori as well. So um, more often than not now you'll see bilingual signs uh, in places. So aquatic centres have started to do that where um, the signage, uh, say for the for the toilet, or in Māori it's Paripaku. Um, you you will see um, signage that has um, both Māori and um, English. Uh, and yeah, I mean, my husband is Māori, so um, both the teenagers can um, not speak fluent Māori, but they. Um, have both been doing Māori at school and um, my stepdaughter is in Kapahaka, so, um, which is Māori performing arts. So they do the haka and sing um, waiata, which is songs. Um, yeah, it's amazing. And you're right, one, one person can do the haka and it's very passionate. So, um, yeah, yeah. When I was at uh, Rotorua, I was at Rotorua and I was um, upstairs looking over the pool hall and and I saw some kids and they were doing a haka. There was a school group in, they'd just done their swimming lessons and they were doing a haka. And I said to the, the centre manager, what's going on? Because isn't this, a, I'm, I'm going to kill you kind of a dance? And he said, no, no, this is a this is a thank you haka. And every mm. school has their own haka. So they're doing their haka for the swim teachers. And I went, Wow, and these kids again pouring themselves into their school haka, going, "This is wonderful to watch." Mm. Gives you goosebumps. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. There must be a perceived resurgence in the use of the native language then in New Zealand over the last lot of years. Yeah, definitely. Um, def- definitely, I would, I would say, in the last five, maybe to ten years, there's been a resurgence. When I was at school, um, we did we did do some Māori, but probably not to the level now. And there's qualifications as well in Māori language um, and Māori knowledge. So, you know, like what potentially be, could have been a lost culture um, now definitely isn't. Um, and it's great. It's great. Tracy, is there only one language? Um, so yeah, there is only one language, but in each area they'll have different um, nuances um, yeah, to how yeah, things yeah. are said or how things are written as well, which I guess worldwide is the yeah. same within a culture. Yeah. Um, I mean, even in English, like when I went to the UK, <laughs> Just the different accents that you hear from different parts of the UK is is amazing. Yeah. Um, and and you know even the little things that I say and a couple of our team here are are from from England. So from ones from Essex and um and the other one is from Northern region. And when I say something and and they laugh when I say things like egg, um. Or fish and chips, or you know things like that. So I'm speaking English, but definitely with a different accent. <laughs> That's for sure. We're really digging into life garden here, aren't we? I <laughs> know. Oh, 
Yeah, I know, I know. Well, let's just get it back. Here's a great little mix of, of the two. Is uh, one of the things I really want to get Tracy talking about is is um, New Zealand's really well known for earthquakes. Um, so they're on a on a tectonic pl- in between two tectonic plates, and in the north, one plate is going under another, and in the south of their island, it's going over the top. So they're also twisting as well as pushing up and buckling under. So it's, it is called the Shaky Isle for uh, good, good reasons. Um, and I was there in 2016 for the Kaikoura um, earthquake. And I was just doing some reading about it this morning before I got talking. And it's the most complex earthquake ever studied. Um, it was 25 different fault planes buckling at once. Ooh. Um, and over the next 10 days, they had like 419 aftershocks. And some of those aftershocks, um, the next day I was in, in the main, because the, the main quake happened at midnight, so you couldn't see much. Um, but it went for two minutes, so it was, a good, it was a good length of time. But the next day, there was a, a 6.6 aftershock when I was crossing the road. And to see buildings and trees and uh, um, telegraph poles move is just amazing. But what amazed me more is that you go down to the pool after that and the pool hasn't cracked in half and the pipes haven't broken and that's what's probably most amazing. Mm, yeah. So, um, yeah, so we're used to earthquakes here. Um, as a kid, I can remember getting under the desk at school. Um, but, yeah, Gary was here for one of our more decent um, earthquakes um, in Kaikoura, uh, which, yeah, for where you were, Gary, they were quite lucky, actually, that they didn't receive damage, but there was some other pools yeah. um, closer to the to the epicentre of the earthquake that, that were damaged. So those pools are, are still under construction. <laughs> um, so Kaikoura's wow. new pool should be opening soon. Um and probably the one that most people would um, recognise from the news is the Christchurch earthquake, which happened in 2011. Um, And so that caused some major damage and had a really massive impact um, on recreation as a whole as well and in aquatic facilities down there. So, they lost some of their major aquatic facilities down there. And interesting, um, I've seen footage of the CCTV camera, um, what happened at the pool, and it was almost... It was almost like watching a tidal wave in the water of the pool. So the pool would go like that and the water would come up and then it would all come back down. Um, And at the time, in a couple of the pools in Christchurch, there was actually school children in the pool at the time of of that earthquake because it was was just after lunchtime. Um, And just, you know, for for the industry, so how do we... How do we manage that situation when it's not something you can really be prepared for? And depending on how the earth is moving, the water's in the pool's going to behave in a in an unusual way. Your lifeguards potentially aren't even going to be able to stand up on pool deck at the time of the earthquake. And you're always told to move away from any windows. And most aquatic centres are 
mostly windows. <laughs> um, so you have the added risk of windows like actually smashing and, and breaking as well and all of your customers in the pool wearing bare feet because obviously if they've been in the pool um, trying to get them once the shaking is stopped to kind of somewhere that's safe. So yeah, it's um, wow. we quite often have um, within industry discussions about how, you know, how as teams do you manage that because most of your evacuation practices and drills will be around that the fire alarm's gone off or, you know, something like that. But for us here, it's actually, so what What are we going to do if we have a, another 6.2 earthquake and how are we going to manage looking after everybody in, that's in the water and out of the water in our facilities? Um, in Christchurch, in one of the fitness centres, the, the whole ceiling of the fitness centre came down and it was sitting on top of the handlebars of the um, stationary bike. So wow. uh, they were really lucky nobody was injured um, at, at that fitness centre, but um, it could have been a lot worse. CCT footage of Wellington pool, Tracy, after the Kayakura um, earthquake. And, yeah, water just receding from one end of the 50-metre pool all the way up to the other and then coming back in force and, and going over the edge of the pool and through the offices mm. and then back into the pool. Like if you came in in the morning, you wouldn't know anything had happened, but to see the footage and go, wow, yeah, it would, it would have washed people out of the pool for sure. Yeah. All I, yeah. I was just going to comment that I'm sure there's different parts of the world have different scenarios written to, into their emergency action plans or the, you know, in their SOPs, et cetera. The good old days in Northern Ireland when we had the troubles in inverted commas for 40 years, and I, I'm sure you were over at some point in that, Tracy. Yeah. We had, mm. and I just always remember going to Scotland and looking through theirs after a move from Northern Ireland and asking the question, well, what do you do when there's a bomb? And they looked at me like I had two heads because I only, that's all I'd ever known as a child and growing <laughs> up was, what do you do if there's a bomb? What do you do if there's a bomb scare? So we had you know, the fire evacuation, et cetera, et cetera, like everybody else. But we also had for, for bomb bomb alerts because that did happen. Swimming pools and leisure centers did get blown up and we, the glass situation, et cetera, and all the rest of it. So it's probably not as strange for me to hear you talking about having to have a procedure for earthquakes because we had one for bomb scares and bombs. That now we do, none of them have it now. If I said to my two boys here, lifeguards, well, what do you do in a bomb scare? They go, oh, what? <laughs> you know? So life has moved on, thankfully. Yeah, it's it, it's whenever you send you know, earthquakes, you, you just wouldn't have thought about that. And I'm sure every different zones in the world have have different, um, you know, a tsunami alert or whatever. Just it's very interesting, though. We've been really lucky here, I guess. Um... And, and this kind of is the links to the earthquakes, but is also linked to COVID. So our government, um, after COVID and realising that people were going to have lost jobs, um, put together what they called a shovel-ready fund. So um, a lot of construction had to stop because of COVID. Um, and so the shovel-ready fund was... Um, 
for projects that ha- were already signed off, they were they were going to happen, um, may have been part way through, um, like the design may have been done and earthworks may have been started. Um, and so uh, our industry was lucky enough that seven projects that were about to begin or had started received funding from the government um, to get them underway straight away this year. Um, so, yeah, aquatics, um, aquatics and Recreation received $112.4 million from this Shovel Ready Fund, uh, and that means wow. seven f- new facilities um, uh, are underway in New Zealand. Uh, which is great, and and a couple of those were facilities that were going to be being rebuilt because of an earthquake, or because now, and that's something that's come out of these bigger earthquakes, have been deemed unsafe in a big earthquake. So they may have survived the Christchurch earthquake, they may have su- survived Kaikoura, um, but actually they're not safe for people to be in. So um, the pool that I learnt to lifeguard in Nainai was closed because of that. So it was deemed to be an earthquake risk building, um, but they've received some funding from this Shovel Ready Fund to rebuild that facility, which is great. I think one of the interesting parts about after in, in the wake of the Christchurch one was how long it takes to rebuild, and there are still sections of Christchurch, but rebuilding from 2011 is that we had a whole – well, not the whole generation, but we had kids who were six about to start or had started school and hadn't learnt to swim because they didn't have a pool. The the, the market for learn to swim in Christchurch was just overwhelmed. Um, yeah. The things you don't think about. Yeah. 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 It had a massive impact. So the Metro, um, which is the biggest facility that they're building in Christchurch, is still uh, under construction. And I guess um, – it's more complex than what building a pool used to be as well. So the work that has to have been done under the ground for them to be able to build the metro, which is going to be a huge facility, um, yeah, that's a lot of the money <laughs> is actually under the ground to ensure it's stable. $130 million. Yeah. $130 million before you saw anything on top of the ground. It's just incredible. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's definitely changed the way um, buildings are built here, um, and especially in Wellington, um, because we are uh, we are right on the fault line. So, so uh, <laughs> uh, a lot of our buildings, uh, some of our older buildings um, or newer buildings, have been pulled down because of the Kaikoura earthquake. Can I ask then? Because we talked about emergency action plans. We also talked about uh, the differences between, if you like, the culture in Australia and New Zealand. What about how you lifeguard a pool? Is it the same in New Zealand as, as Australia? Or what, what are the big differences? Gary, you know, in the UK, it's quite prescriptive about how you manage a leisure facility that's given out in, in by the health and safety executive, the guidance and HSG 179 is our document, Managing Health and Safety in Swimming Pools. And you know that in an unprogrammed session in a 25-metre pool, it's recommended you have two lifeguards, et cetera, et cetera. And we have talked about the differences in in how pools are managed in Australia. What 
the question then for me is, how similar is New Zealand uh, in their lifeguarding practices and management with with, with uh, New Zealand? Are you, are you both fairly close? Mm, I don't know. I haven't really been to many Australian pools. What would you say from your experience, Gary? Um, I think they're very similar because when I arrive at one of your centres and walk around with the lifeguards, um, I don't notice a lot of differences in what they're doing. So it is, it is very similar. We're both mobile. Mm. Um, we don't have the numbers on deck that the UK does. Um, and, and it seems to work. Like obviously New Zealand doesn't have um, very many fatalities a year in public centres, that's for sure. Mm. You, you'd be lucky to have one or two, wouldn't you, Tracy? Yeah, we, normally we would probably have, I guess, over over the entire, so we've got about 225 what would be called public swimming pools in New Zealand. Um, and some of those are seasonal, so they're only open for summer. Um, but we would probably average, yeah, around the, between two to five um, mark, Quite a few of those are normally related to medical events. Um, so, yeah, yeah. you know, a, a swimmer has a heart attack yeah. um, in the pool and is pulled out and CPR is given but doesn't doesn't survive. Um, in the last, uh, interesting enough, in the last seven months, we've had two um, fatalities of children, which is really unusual for us um, in, yep. in, in public swimming pools. Um, it's normally a home swimming pool scenario where we see children um, as a drowning fatality. So um, yeah, that that's been that's been unusual this year. Um, but yeah, normally we we don't see many, and we would we are pretty much the same. We would have normally a minimum of two lifeguards on, and that's um, you know even if it's just a twenty five meter pool. Uh, what would probably be different then in the UK is that when they open up early in the morning, one of those lifeguards may be on reception and one may be patrolling pool deck. Um, some of our pools are so small that actually they can see each other anyway. So reception and the pool is, you know, right next to each other. Um, but, yeah, yeah we, yeah, we just have... Again, I think uh, instances of um, swimming um, competence in New Zealand is probably quite high because because you are there's, there's so much access to water with public pools and inland large inland lakes plus this massive coastline and this warm weather in especially in the North Island. Um, uh, New Zealand's had particular success with changing attitudes to risk taking around water, especially with a character we sort of came to know as the Swim Reaper. <laughs> hey Tracy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So this <laughs> the Swim Reaper um, is a campaign that Water Safety New Zealand uh, ran with a couple of years ago now, um, and and he is a, a reaper. So what you would um, recognise as a reaper with uh, the the black cloak on, you never see his face. Um, and the uh, is it the sickle or the scythe? Yeah, in, in yeah, his hand. Yeah. Um, so that campaign is aimed at um, that kind of risky teenager, young, early twenties 
kind of group that had started to feature quite highly uh, in the drowning statistics, um, and that's across all areas of water. Um, so, you know, lakes, beaches, rivers, um, any of those kind of environments. So, um, yeah, he's a, he's on Instagram. He's got his own Instagram page, um, and every summer he comes back. Uh, he's also on our um, on our TV channels as adverts as well, but uh, his predominantly he's on Tinder. Yeah, he's on Tinder, <laughs> but predominantly he's, he's on uh, social media because of the demographic of people that they're trying to reach there, and um, you know, recognizing that risky behaviour and that has been the cause of of drownings in those environments. So, um, yeah, we're we're thinking about getting the swim reaper next year to do a couple of things at swimming pools because we've seen increases this year of um young males diving into especially um, after lockdown pools yeah and we've had a couple of um spinal spinal injuries from those so uh we, we'll we'll probably get a uh, swim reaper into into a swimming pool next year i've been following the swim reaper for some time so it's I am the swim raper, all one word on Instagram, yes. But yeah. I had no clue. I had no clue who it was or who did that until just now. <laughs> so I didn't real yeah. I, I just thought it was some I thought it was just some guy who was really but someone like you, Gary, who was really into his water safety said, I'm gonna do something. So I did not realise it was um run by you guys Tracy you know that's that's brilliant because mm-hmm. I, I just love what it does it's fantastic yeah so it's Water Safety New Zealand's um, campaign brilliant so they went to a marketing company with this problem of mm. young particularly ma- young males and risk taking behaviour in, in Australia the kind of language we would use around that when we look at the statistics and say look you know over half of, of these statistics are young males we would say it's because they they take they risk-taking behaviours, they're on their own, uh, all these things. I'm just going to read you something off a New Zealand website. There's a reason young males disproportionately make up more than one-third of preventable drownings in New Zealand, and that is stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> this, is the brief, this is the brief that the, uh, the, the marketing crew were given. We have these people who, it's not that they're not smart, they just make yeah. dumb decisions. So that's why his whole thing is, his whole mantra is, um, if it's, what does he say? Oh, if you, if you swim dumb, mm. you're done. That's his, that's his thing. And it's all, it, and instead of saying safety message, he's saying, you know, jump off a cliff. I'll be waiting for you. You know, drink and go for a swim. Like it's all he does is push the other message. And the, 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 the marked improvements in fatalities of uh, the first mm. year after the swim reaper, I think we had no fatalities in, in, um, natural waterways and, Water Safe New Zealand, I was talking to John, he says, we're not responsible for all that statistic, but it was a pretty big statistic to go to zero in the yeah. first year. It was just crazy. Yeah. It's interesting you say that. There was a, an advert that most people of my age, okay, I'm, I'm 58 now, most people of my age would remember an advert in the 70s and it featured a Grim Reaper and it was all about, uh, it was very much, as you describe, it, it was about him the Grim Reaper missing getting you. 
you know, because somebody had reached, thrown, waited or row, you know, and they had they had defeated the Grim Reaper. Now, that was in black and white yeah. back in the 70s. And I, so many people of my age would remember that. And I love that idea of, you know, it's not about the don't do this and don't do that. It's actually, it, it, it's, it's, it's a negative, negative way of working it. And it works, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, it does work. So the, the Swim Reaper appeared on Bondi Beach um, for an advertising for a, for a, I think they were trying to bring the idea to Australia, and he and he was in the news one night saying, "Oh, the Swim Reaper New Zealand's on Bondi Beach. We're going to do something." But Australia never used it, which I just think was ridiculous considering how successful it was. But a lot of time, you know, Australia likes to snub their nose and go, "Oh no, we know better." It was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you jump on Instagram now, they didn't invent it. You see, no, that's it. Yeah, it wasn't their idea. Is it? Right now on Instagram, the Swim Reaper has 440,000 followers <laughs> through a marketing campaign. They won some good awards for that, that marketing campaign, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah. We've even got um, – they've had a campaign about uh, sunburn hair because obviously we we burn hair a lot easier because of the ozone. So they had a campaign last year in summer, um, a health promotion agency here, called um dumb burn and it had pictures of people with you know the the uh <laughs> the white marks and then the bright red or the peeling <laughs> so they called it um you know you don't want to be burn. seen with the dumb burn so maybe it's just that we're we're more happy to be See, direct about yeah, it, uh, <laughs> I mean, if you said that in, yeah, if you said that in the uk the snowflakes would be out oh you can't say that you can't call them dumb <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's just the way it is now it's you can't say anything to anybody about anything in case you offend them there's some brilliant stuff going kicking around now yeah i guess the other thing that sticks out about new zealand for me is the industry buy-in so imagine you know, a country with four million people across two large islands and you go to their conference and there will be three or four hundred people there from the industry now i can go to the conference in sydney where the population is six million people and we're lucky to get 120 people there. You know, it's just the buy-in from New Zealand is huge. There's just there's managers, lifeguards, they're all there pulling in the same direction, and that's what gives the New Zealand industry its strength and its cohesion. So it's not for the party then? Oh, they do like the party as well. Both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think we're and, – and, I again, I mean, I don't, I don't know worldwide um, – what it's like, but I think we're quite lucky um, in New Zealand that actually everyone's still happy to share information as well. So, um, yes. you know, between yep. different councils, um, people are happy to, be, you know, to pick up the phone and say, I really need to talk to somebody about this and, and you know, through the work that we do, I kind of have a good idea of who's doing what and in what part of the country, and you can link people together, and they're happy to share, and that you know they're more than happy to help out people. Um, through COVID, we um, had coffee chats with our industry, so once a week, um, I would be online, and anybody from the aquatics industry could join us, and it was just a Hey, how are you going? You know, what are, what are you doing at the moment? You're all in lockdown. How are you contacting your staff and how are you keeping in touch with your customers? But 
everyone was really happy to share what they were doing. And, and one lady that called in was really new to the industry and everyone felt for her because she'd literally started managing a pool. And within two, three weeks, then we were in lockdown. And, um, and so many people that were on that coffee call were just like, okay, we'll send you some information. After this call, let's get in touch and have a phone conversation and I'll be able to send you some information about this. I think we're really lucky in New Zealand that we can still do that. Um, and maybe it's because we don't have a whole lot of legislation and a whole lot of that kind of red tape mm. um, that maybe pre- prevents people from sharing. I totally agree. Um, but, yeah, people are, are more than happy to share and more than happy to contact each other um, just to ask a question or share something with someone What's, else. While you've got people who are serious about their job, you don't need the legislation to make people do stuff and it just allows you to develop quick um, common-sense approaches to problems. What yeah. I see, yeah. what I get the feeling, let's say, between the UK and you guys, people are more accepting of looking after themselves, looking after their own risk um, and not being wrapped in cotton wool. There isn't the blame culture. Uh, it's very much, if you need to cross the road, you cross the road in what, are, what is the safest way you can do that. Where, to use that analogy in the UK, every road has got a a, a pelican crossing with lights to stop traffic, etc., etc. You know that's the two extremes. And mm. I, I first noticed that in Germany because I asked the question, "Why, you know, wh- where are the, the the pelican crossings, the pedestrian crossings?" And there aren't that many because it's it's you know you take the risk of crossing the road; it's up to you. And I I think just in my the few conversations I've had with with you guys in the past. That's the thing that sticks out to me very much that you people are very much guided to be responsible for their own uh, safety and not do the dumb thing that you were talking about earlier, which I think is brilliant. Where in the UK, everybody's wrapped in cotton wool and and the risk assessments just get crazier and crazier and crazier. Uh, so, you know, what what if an alien spaceship lands in the pool? What are we going to do? I know that's a bit bit of an extreme, <laughs> but you can't cover everything. So that I think we've gone too far one way and need to pull it back a little bit and, and teach kids how to, how to teach and adults now, because there's a lot of, there's a generation missed it. Teach them how to assess, do their own risk assessment, if you want to call it that. Yeah, I think that's important. Well, in New Zealand, Tracy, what, What's the go with uh, civil suits? So you, because there are basically next to no civil suits happening in New Zealand. Because if you get injured at a pool badly, rather than sue the pool, you get support from the government, don't you? Yeah. So if we have any accident anywhere in New Zealand, um, we have what's called the accident. Um, it's ACC, which is accident compensation. So um, your healthcare if you've had an accident will be covered by that sometimes it's not fully covered like you may have to pay some of it yourself um but yeah so we don't really have any type of civil suit where people would sue a pool if something had happened to them when they're at a pool we do have a regulator that does check on on accidents um which is called WorkSafe. um 
and and they do you know as an industry we would report so if there was a serious incident that happened at a swimming pool um the swimming pool would contact worksafe and say that this has happened um but then worksafe may come and review that incident or they may they may not um you know so they will they will decide whether they should come and review what had happened at the pool or they may say thank you for sending us through your your full incident report that's all the information that we need on on this incident so um yeah we're really lucky um a really good example of that is um down in, in down south, there was an incident where uh, an elderly gentleman passed away. It was a medical event. Uh, one of the lifeguards that um, helped in that event, um, he was from the States, and um, he was really surprised at how the council uh, wrapped around the team. So we're definitely big here on the well-being of the staff after an incident and the well-being of the other customers that were in the facility at the time of the incident. Um, so we interviewed him um, for a presentation at our conference last year, which we ran online. Um, and he said that was one of the things that he found really unusual compared to the state. In the States, he would be sent into an office. He would need to write everything down there would need to be lawyers involved straight away, even if it was a medical event. Whereas for him, yes, there was a debrief and they made sure that they wrote the reports, but then they had council staff and, you know, the CEO from the council come into the facility, meet with all the staff, sit down and have a chat to them. They had full support for weeks after with counsellors, but even the family came back and gave them flowers and stuff and said thanks for helping, you know. So, yeah, just so different. Oh, and I was going to say, I, I, I helped, helped um, a council in Sydney a while ago after a fatality, and I was involved very late in the process, like 18 months after the fatality, to try and help with their back end of processes. And one of the things I realised was, so the man who died was an older man who'd been coming to the pool for over a decade every day to swim, and he died. Um, and he wasn't found for some time and it wasn't a very well-run centre. So there was a lot of um, angst amongst all the staff and the manager, that kind of stuff. And I realised, but that I said, has anyone so sent flowers to the family or, or this man's wife? No. So, so, so no one from this council has actually contacted them and said anything? No. Why? Why haven't we done that? Because uh, our, our, our lawyers said not to. This is ridiculous. This is how the this is how it gets worse mm. because you just haven't gone around and knocked on the door with some flowers and said it's been a really bad day for everybody. Like it's just they take the the lawyers take the human element out of it and they make our lives worse and we pay them more to deal with the mess. It's just I was amazed. Well, you send somebody a bunch of flowers and then that's you accepting the blame. That's the way the lawyers will see it. Mm. Oh. The, the, it's not human. It's not human, and 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 as you said, the poor staff, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah. I'm delighted to hear what you you were saying there, Tracy, about how it's but you cocoon everyone basically, don't you? You wrap them up and make sure everyone's okay because in the UK, and I've said, shared this in quite a few podcasts, and I say it very regularly as well. Whenever if you had somebody drop dead on a five-a-side football pitch. 
in a leisure centre in the UK, you would be trailed off the pitch so that the game could go on. <laughs> if you had a fata- if you had a heart attack in the swimming pool, the pool is cleared, the leisure centre is cleared, the police come in, the health and safety executive come in, everybody comes in to pin and blame, and that's you know the the, the reality of something bad yeah. happening in a swimming pool. Even though it could be, you know, you could have two people die at exactly the same time of exactly the same condition on a football court and in the swimming pool. But the swimming pool one is a shutdown and it's just panic stations, I suppose. And it's yeah. and, and it will happen more and more as, as people are living longer and, and more and more people have medical events in swimming pools. Let's just be honest about it. I guess if you look at it in a, in a different way, and we've had that conversation here, we had um, a gentleman passed away in, in a changing room um, at a swimming pool just last week. Um, and, you know, I think it was um, the, one of the people that I talked to and they said at least he wasn't in a car and, and, and you know, like he had the best care yeah. that he possibly could have had in the changing room at the swimming pool, the staff did everything that they could for him. If he'd been driving to the pool when that happened, he may have crashed into another car and then there was going to be other people injured. Um, And I guess we underestimate the value sometimes of what our teams do. You took the words right out of my mouth. You could write a song about that. But you took took the words (laughs) right out of my mouth in that we lifeguards in general only get the bad, you know, tend to get the bad press rather than about all the good things that are done every day in every single pool all over the world. You mm. know, the preventative little measures that stop the chain of events happening. Or if somebody had a stroke in the swimming pool, that are, they've gotten out within, you know, 10 seconds, 15 seconds or whatever. and they've, Or someone's had a heart attack and the CPR commences right away. I mean, it is one of the best places to have a medical event is in a leisure centre, let's be honest. Because... Mm. You're surrounded by AEDs and yeah. highly trained staff who are training for something that might never happen. Uh, that's to steal your line again, Gary, from somewhere. Uh, but it's just unfortunate that, you know, when Mr. Jones has a heart attack at the end of the pool and is, is standing there for two minutes, you know, dead under the water, um, that all of a sudden, you know, lifeguards are getting trailed all, all over the coals for that one thing that the, the, the fellow was more or less dead immediately anyway. Yeah, and it is those little wins we've got to take, like Tracy says, telling mm. the staff you know, what, what, what could have been the alternatives. Um, I had some lifeguards who um, had resuscitated a man and he went to hospital and he only lived for a day. But in that day, his family were able to come and see him and they spoke to him. Um, uh, he, had, he had a second medical event in hospital, so he died. But... So it went down as, I'm talking about a fatality at this pool, but I said, it wasn't. You guys saved me. He got to see his family rather than, you know, looking in, in, a, mm. in a coffin. He was sitting up in a bed talking to him for a day. It's those little wins. It's been, um, it's been great having a chat, though. It's good fun, isn't it? That's the whole idea of what we're doing, yeah. I mean, the, the idea of, of this came up with because lockdown and talking to people, it was cracking me up that I, I wasn't able to get out and about and, and then this has just kind of grown and, and developed a little bit. And, and it's great that you can, I can sit and you're in Wellington and Gary's just outside Sydney and we're having a chat about something that affects us all. Yes. And, and, it's, and it's a bit of fun and it's a bit of a, bit of a learning experience. But 
it's really just three people having a chat. What I'm thinking, you see, is there'll probably be some thinking after this about now that we know each other as as a trio, what can we talk about next? I think that's what will come out of, of this, hopefully anyway. It'll not be one of those, I'm never talking to that guy again. Yeah. <laughs> Irish psycho. Robin, the, the golden yeah. tonsils. <laughs> Which station does he work for? <laughs> we'll hit him. Yes, so... <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tracy and Gary it just remains for me to say once again thanks very much for your time it's been very enjoyable very educational I have to say um, I'll have to go back and look at my notes and, and work on my pronunciation for the, our next um, gathering but in the meantime uh, you two have a good day and I hope to talk to you both again real soon we will Thanks, guys. Thanks, Tracy. Happy Waitangi Day. Great. Thanks, Robin. Bye. Yeah, thank you. Kakiti anō. Goodbye.